Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Um, as most of you know, my I have two kids. My wife and my son, my oldest son, are at the Bengals and Steelers game in Pittsburgh this morning, and I am here because I love Jesus. And so I just want everyone to know that. Um, but he he's he's up there. They went with uh, one of his friends and and his mom, and um, he's in sixth grade. It's it's a wild time right now to be a dad of a sixth grader. And one of the things as we navigate parenthood right now is his growing access to the outside world and his access to the internet and knowing how to protect him but also not smother him. I mean, there's lots online, but not just the stuff you would imagine. There's just the growing awareness of the world as it is. There's the growing awareness of the evil that we see in the world around us. There's often a world that is not kind and not just, and a world that is often filled with things that are scary for kids to come to terms with for the first time. I remember as we were coming back from vacation in Florida this past September, we stopped at the Legacy Museum. I'm actually wearing a Legacy Museum sweatshirt today. It's uh, where you learn about uh, everything from slavery to mass incarceration, Jim Crow, everything. And watching my sixth grader wrestle with and, and see up close the, the evil that the world can bring about, the legacy of all sorts of things, white supremacy, and see up close and personal some of the greatest atrocities that our country has ever experienced before. It's hard knowing as a sixth grader how to talk to him about school shootings. It's hard to navigate the world as it is, as I said, with, without smothering or making him fearful of the world out there as it is. How do you lead your kids? I know you probably have these conversations if you have kids as well in ways that are not passive, but also ways that aren't driving them to be crippled with fear. And I use that word evil. Uh, I don't use it lightly, put it that way. Because it's certainly a word that is misused, it is weaponized, it's also a reality that is minimized and often avoided as well. And it was no less the issue the same way 2,000 years ago as Jesus is telling us and teaching these things about prayer as it is today. He knew evil quite well. Israel was living under the oppressive, violent regime of Rome. Jesus knew evil, saw evil all the time, right in front of his face. He was not praying these words from a position of earthly power. He was praying these words among a marginalized people. And he teaches us with that in mind to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is how the Lord's Prayer closes. And and I, I wonder, I hope you wonder why evil in this world drives us to do these things other than pray. What should we should do, how we should respond to evil, Jesus says, is to pray, to pray for deliverance, to pray that God would save us, to pray independence. It's a prayer that teaches us that we need deliverance. 
It's a prayer that teaches us that we have a deliverer. Now, you may wonder, why does Jesus teach us not to be led into temptation? That's a strange thing to pray. Well, you know, we have to understand the full counsel of Scripture here. James 1.13 says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So there must be something more at stake here. There must be something else going on here. And it can be found in what is often lost in translation. In the Greek, this word for temptation, it's really best translated as trials. I love the NRSV of the Matthew 13 words here. It says, and do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. I think this is the a closer translation to what Jesus is actually teaching us to pray. God, don't lead us into these seasons of trials and struggle. Instead, God, clear a path for us away from this hardship. God, in the midst of an evil world around us, deliver us. But, but maybe also we need to ask, who do we need deliverance from? In his introduction to Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, he, he wisely states these words, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he's speaking specifically about Satan and demons here, but I think this applies to the larger picture of evil and spiritual warfare. We are all in danger of both a modern, very secularized apathy that is detached from reality, or on the other side, a very religious, paralyzing, over-spiritualized fear of what is in front of us. We need together as a church, and this is why I'm really, really sober-minded in teaching this for our community here, we need spiritual sobriety about what this actually means for us. Because the reality of evil around us shapes the world that we find ourselves in, shapes the experience that we have, and the truth is, is that we inhabit a world that is at war for our very souls. That's a sober outlook that is true about where we actually are. It's not an outlook that avoids it with some sort of modern apathy. It's not an outlook that cowers in fear because of what is around us. No, we have to understand we inhabit a war zone, and the war is for our soul. And it's a battle that for us is not always very easy to see, is it? Sometimes it's difficult to see. When it comes to understanding what we're talking about when we say evil, I think the, the old ancient understanding of this, St. Thomas Aquinas in the Book of Common Prayer talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. How many are ready for that? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Each represents this layer. They, they teach you in the Book of Common Prayer to pray against the temptation of these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are layers that are inhabiting the battle that you and I find ourselves in, and we need to unpack these layers together to understand a fuller picture of what evil is and why we're praying for God to deliver us from it. Let's start with the world. First, I would define the world as the systems and structures and norms that uphold injustice and evil and deny the authority of God. 
What I'm talking about here is, is that it doesn't take long to look around us and see the way the world not only ignores, but upholds evil, right? 1 John 2, 15 and 16 tells us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now listen, it's important with this language to understand the Bible is not telling us not to love people. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about the systems and structures and norms that uphold an unjust, God-denying world. He's saying, don't find yourselves in collusion with those systems and structures. He's saying, do not participate and love the things that undermine people's humanity, that deny the humanity of image bearers of God. Now this morning, I could point to several of these systems and structures that uphold evil in this world, and I bet I would get about a 50% amen rate, because I'd get some of them that you would say, yes, and then I'd get some of them you'd probably say, you shouldn't talk about that. The problem with talking about the world in the church is that we speak of the world as them and never us. The truth is that we're all influenced by the world. The world is not a them. The world is what we are all facing, you and I. We're in grave spiritual danger when we speak about the world as a way that influences them and never touches us. Because we become unaware of what it's actually doing in our own lives and stories. Eugene Peterson, in the long obedience in the same direction, he write, writes that world is an atmosphere, a mood. It is nearly as hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptation as it is for a fish to discover impurities in the water. There is a sense, a feeling that things aren't Right, and that the environment is not whole, but just what it is eludes analysis. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love, but it's hard to put our finger on what is wrong. In other words, let's not pretend that we're not breathing the very same air that they are. And if it's not for the work of the Spirit in us, we're going to be just as blind to it. We're going to be just as influenced, just as filled with worldliness. One of the ways you see this quite often is when there are folks outside of the church who may do something that is not representative of what the scriptures may teach on a particular thing. And in combating this, you turn to evil, dehumanizing language and talking about these people as if they are not humans at all. In combating worldliness, you're being just as worldly. Which leads us to another layer of the battle, this layer of the flesh. I would define the flesh as the fracturing work of sin in our minds, bodies, habits, and desires. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not specifically talking about our physical bodies, but rather sin's impact on our whole 
selves. Some Christians have taken the idea of the flesh and turned it into a, this, this very much heresy that our bodies are evil and our spirits are good, that we're just going to cast this old fleshly suit off one day because God hates the flesh. Let me tell you that. That is actually heresy. That is called Gnosticism. It's what the early church was battling firsthand. God gave us these bodies, and guess what? He gave them and called them good. He said our whole selves is who we are. So when we talk about the flesh, God is not teaching us to hate our sinful bodies. God is teaching us that the flesh impacts our mind, body, soul, spirit, all of us. Our flesh is corrupted. Our minds are corrupted. We experience physical, mental, emotional, relational. Everything is impacted by our flesh and by sin's fracturing work in these places. Jesus As we move towards him, the Holy Spirit begins his work of forming us to be like him. And part of that spiritual journey then, as Paul talks about often, is putting to death the flesh, not meaning our physical bodies, but the ways in which these fracturing places within us are holding court, putting them to death in order that we may be made towards wholeness in Jesus. Galatians 5, 17 says, for the flesh Desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But hear me in this, too. This is so important, talking about the flesh. The spirit of God, his number one goal is not just to get you to stop sinning. The aim of the Holy Spirit is wholeness. Sin causes fractures. Wholeness in Christ is what the eradication of sin actually brings. We're putting to death the sin that is within us, not just because we're dealing with sin, but because God wants us to be whole. Because sin breaks apart what it means in us to be image bearers. And by the Holy Spirit forming us and shaping us to be like Jesus and putting to death the sins of the flesh within us, we're being formed into something more than we could be on our own. We're being formed into the image of Jesus. And by his grace, by his spirit, this is a process that is happening to the very moment we breathe our last breath. If it's not, then we may not be following Jesus. I mean, if you stop growing, if you stop being formed, if you stop putting to death the flesh and becoming alive in the spirit, what are you doing? You don't graduate to something more. You're always in the process of being formed into the image of Jesus. And sometimes this experience that we have in the flesh, let's be honest, sometimes this is outside of even our own choice. Sometimes the effects of sin are because people have sinned against us. Sometimes the effects of the flesh are because patterns have formed in us over time that move beyond our conscious decision, that have formed us in the flesh to something that we do not want to be and are often not even cognitively aware of. James K. Smith writes, to to recognize this is to appreciate something about the the mechanics of temptation. Not all sins are decisions. 
Because we tend to be intellectualists we, who assume that we are thinking things, we construe temptation and sin accordingly. We think temptation is an intellectual reality where some idea is presented to us that we then think about and make a conscious choice to pursue or not. But once you realize that we are not just thinking things but creatures of habit, you'll then realize that temptation isn't just about bad ideas or wrong decisions. It's often a factor of deformation and wrongly ordered habits. Anyone who has ever struggled with or understands or walked with people in addiction knows this to be true. Sometimes sin has so deformed our minds and habits that it has made us in the flesh things that we do not want to be and sometimes don't know how to control. Not always because we're making those decisions consciously, but because in the flesh we have been formed in this way. So we talked about the world. We've talked about the flesh. Finally, we come to the devil. The old devil, as I heard a lady say one time. The devil. I like that. When I talk about the devil, what I mean here is Satan and demons who seek to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. I, I want to stop right here and just say on your worship guide and restorationlex.com slash this week, there is a link to a documentary that is on YouTube called The Unseen Realm that gets into topics around this spiritual realm and specifically Satan and demons that I would love for you to look at. It is fascinating. I can't get into fully what we would want to get into on this topic in particular, but it is a fantastic documentary. It's free on YouTube that you can watch, so check it out. So talking about Satan, he is a spiritual being who led a rebellion with other fallen angels against God after which they were thrown out of heaven. That's what the scriptures say. But what I first want you to know and make sure you know very well is that Satan is not equal to God. There is often this really, really corny meme that gets passed around Facebook of like Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. Have you seen this meme? You know what I'm talking about? It's so tacky. First of all, it's a very, very Caucasian Jesus who has used a lot of product and then he's arm wrestling Satan, who, who is, is just like every, you know, horror movie Satan of all time, as if it's like this is the battle. Satan is not equal to God. The scriptures do not present Satan as an equal yin-yang experience of God. That's nowhere close. This is not like that. Satan is a created being. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not omnipresent. And we massively misrepresent reality when we present Satan as somehow equal to God. It's just not the case. And yet, Satan, we understand, is our enemy. But in that, Satan is also, we need to know, a defeated enemy. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his days are numbered. When Jesus returns, he and his demons will be cast into darkness for eternity and will be no more once and for all, and the world will be cleansed on that day when Jesus returns of all evil and death. And yet in his defeat, we need to understand that his aim remains the same. He still comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy the people of God and the purpose of God. That is happening. He is still active in this world, both in ways that we can see and in ways that we cannot see. 
In the scripture, he's given many names. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3. In Matthew 12, 24, he's called the prince of demons, the God of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 1 John 5, 18 calls him the evil one. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 calls him the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. But then there's this one that I would love to focus on today, one name that he is called in John 8, 44. Jesus calls him the father of what? Lies. The primary strategy that the enemy has in your life is lies. More than anything else, it is lies. Because his power is limited, because his time is limited, his strategy is simple. If he can get us to believe lies about God, if he can get us to believe lies about ourselves, if he can get us to believe lies about our neighbors, about reality itself, we're doing the job for him. We live out of those lies, and he's already won because we have believed what he's told us. So I want to talk about this morning because we need to hear and take seriously when lies are being spoken to us and over us. The enemy's primary strategy in our life is to lie. And it's not if you're experiencing this. The question we need to have as people in spiritual sobriety is how am I being lied to? How Am I being spoken to in ways that contradict the will of God? We need the Holy Spirit's discernment and understanding and being able to know when we are hearing lies. I'm going to give you this morning as we close at least three ways you can know you're hearing a lie from the evil one. First, it's a lie. Is it contrary to the witness of Scripture and to the character of Christ? Notice, I did not say, does it go against the scriptures? I did not say, does it go against the Bible? I have news for you this morning. Satan knows the Bible better than you. In fact, when you look at the scriptures and see his temptation of Jesus, what does he do? He uses the Bible. Guess what Satan still does? He uses the Bible. He loves to wrap his lies in religious language and scriptural references. He still doesn't. He knows how to manipulate the scriptures against us. He knows how to get to twist them into lies that destroy us. And so it's not a matter of whether it contradicts scripture, but does it undermine the actual character of Christ that we see in the scriptures? Because if we understand the Bible, as we've taught so many times around here, through the lens of Jesus, we understand that the lies of the enemy are, are given to be both contradictions of the scripture and against God's character revealed in Jesus. They are undermining the character of Christ. They are calling us into religious lives that look nothing like Jesus. That's what happens when Scripture is contradicted. My friends, I hope you know this, how often Satan and evil uses the Bible to do his work. So we need to know, not just is it contradicting Scripture, is it calling us away from the witness of Christ's likeness in Jesus? Secondly, is it driven by shame and accusation? Remember, Satan is called, we heard earlier in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. Because if he can get us believing accusations against ourselves, 
if he can get us to wallow in shame and fear, or if he can use our mouths as people of accusation, as people of shame, as people who drive others into fear, his job is done. There is a massive difference, I hope you know this, between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the enemy. One of the most important things we can do as we grow in Christ is learn the difference between the conviction of the Spirit and the accusation of the enemy. The conviction of the Holy Spirit leads to freedom. Accusation of the enemy leads to cycles of shame. I'm telling you, I've been convicted of sin many times before, and often it is painful to walk into that conviction, but guess what? It feels like an invitation into freedom by someone that loves me and not an accusation of shame. God does not use shame to change you. Shame does not change you. Shame can only push you downward. When God brings conviction by his spirit, he does so to bring freedom. The work of the Holy Spirit is a gentle invitation out of the patterns of sin into the wholeness of Christ and not just using the Bible to shame you into fear. Is that clear? The enemy loves to whisper these lies of shame and accusation with just enough religious self-righteousness attached to it that it, you, you can almost think it comes from God. But that's not the Holy Spirit. God does not use shame and accusation because Jesus has taken your shame. Jesus has borne the accusations of your sin, and you now have in God's spirit freedom. And finally today, one last question. Does it inhibit you from loving your neighbors and enemies? This is an important question for our time because Satan is a master manipulator of Scripture. As we've talked about, he knows how easy it is to weaponize the very Scriptures that we preach to demonize and dehumanize our neighbors and our enemies. We see this over and over again when evil, again, is always them and never us. The enemy wants us to see our neighbors, see them as the personification of evil. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is no them in terms of evil. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against who? Flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who is the enemy? The enemy is the enemy. The systems and structures that dehumanize and enslave us, they are the enemy. We look more like the enemy when we become those people of shame and accusation. We look more like the enemy when we dehumanize other image bearers of God. We need to understand, especially as we move towards these next couple of years, people are not the enemy. We have an enemy. We have the world. We have the flesh. We have Satan and demons in this world bringing about evil. That is what we fight against, not other image bearers of God. We have a God who died for his enemies and did not condemn them. Where we land together today in how we overcome and pray against evil as we do is Romans 12, 21. These words I want to move into a time of worship with here together. 
Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These words not only sum up the strategy of God's deliverance for us, but they are the foundation of our future. Because when we look back to the past, when we look back at the cross, we see that God did not overcome evil with evil himself. God overcome evil by becoming all our sin and bringing about the good. The cross is God overcoming evil with good. And we look to our future and know that there is a day coming when evil will be eradicated, when Satan, sin, and death will be no more. Not because we've used evil to drive it away, but because God has overcome evil with good. That is our past. That is our future. And my friends, it is our strategy here in the present. We, in a holy defiance of the evil in the world around us, we seek the good of the world. We are for those who should be called our enemies. We seek out ways to offer the goodness of God in this world because by faith we believe that we don't overcome evil with more evil. We overcome evil with what? With good. And so here today as we pray, we look into our future, this day in Revelation 21 where the old order of things has been passed away, where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain, where violence has been stopped once and for all, where hatred has been driven out, where heaven and earth have met together, healing and wholeness over our minds and bodies, where our flesh has been redeemed, where the world has been renewed, where Satan has been cast out, there is a day coming where this will be our reality. And so, Lord, until that day comes, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, in the ways where we are bogged down and weary from the world we see, deliver us. In the ways that we recognize in our own flesh the patterns and the practices of sin that we know we still need to put to death, deliver us. Lord, in the lies that we are spoken to, spoken over us, God, the enemy's attempts, to turn us to fear and shame and accusation. We pray, God, deliver us. And for our own inability sometimes to see an evil that is always out there and never here, never an evil that we ourselves need deliverance from, would you open our eyes, God? Would you give us compassion and grace for those we have formally pointed the finger at and give us as your people the power of your goodness to overcome the evil that you promised. God, it's heavy sometimes out there. That's why we pray how much longer we sing this song because it's heavy sometimes. But you carry that weight. Say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
So God, in that worldly weariness that so many of us carry, in the mourning and crying and pain that is our presence and not yet our future, meet us here. Deliver us.